Welcome to the MindBeat podcast by Effective School Solutions. I'm your host, Duncan Young, CEO of Effective School Solutions. And I'm your co-host, Lane Whitaker, Senior Director of Professional Learning at Effective School Solutions. The MindBeat podcast is the definitive source for all topics related to school-based mental health, from sharing best practices to highlighting innovative school districts to keeping track of legislation. MindBeat is the go-to source for educators and administrators looking to implement a mental health care continuum. Together, we can make a difference in school-based mental health care and in the lives of students, families, and educators. Let's get started. Hello, everybody. Welcome to another episode of the MindBeat podcast. Uh, we're incredibly excited to have you today. Uh, my name is Duncan Young, CEO of Effective School Solutions. And I'm Lane Whitaker, Senior Director of Professional Learning at Effective School Solutions. And we are joined by a special guest host, uh, Dawn Ortiz. Dawn, would you like to introduce yourself? Hi, everyone. Thank you so much for having me. I feel really privileged and honored to be here and be part of uh, the podcast. Um, and I'm looking forward to contributing. So at, uh, at Effective School Solutions, we've got a team of probably, what, five, 550 people. So every once in a while, we're going to be kind of like hand-selecting individuals from the broader team to join us on the on the podcast. Um, I, I will I will share that Don is known for uh, jumping up on podcasts dressed in like outrageous outfits. And so uh, <laughs> we've seen Don as like Frida Kahlo. We've seen Don as a, as a nun. So... Uh, so, but today, Dawn, you're just Dawn, and that's fantastic. That's wonderful, and uh, looking great to, lovely as well. Great to, great to My see. My reputation you. precedes me. What can I say? Is, is, are there any <laughs> of the costumes we haven't seen that, like, you could have shown up? Like, do you have like a like a like a closet where you open it and it's just nothing but like, you know, I did outrageous outfits? Some stuff that I did not get a chance to, you know, uh, showcase, which is you know some Star Wars related stuff. You oh. know, uh, Leia, Princess Leia. Like my, um, my, do you, do you like my Darth Vader coffee mug? Yes, yeah. I know you're a very big fan, as am I. Uh, so that's one that I'm still, you know, I have it in the closet awaiting, um, you know, showcasing. So, <laughs> so you may have appreciated that I was Janet Jackson, uh, Rhythm Nation, Circa Rhythm Nation. <laughs> For for Halloween, it was very popular. My costume, you would have appreciated it then. <laughs> All right, sorry. dressing up. It's such a fun opportunity. So I think we've got next year's Mindbeat Halloween edition figured out, right? So we'll all, we'll <laughs> oh, all come. Let's uh, do it. You know. I'm in. Oh, that'll be fun. All right. So we, we've got a, a very special guest today, uh, Natasha King, who is the SELPA manager for the San Mateo County, California, uh, SELPA, Special Education Local Planning Area. Natasha is someone that we've known for a long time. I cannot think of a, a better advocate for school-based mental health and a better expert on uh, what great high-quality school-based mental health looks like. Uh, in, in general, but particularly her understanding of uh, California for all of our California listeners, I think you'll find this very, very uh, helpful uh, to hear from uh, Natasha and some of her insights today. So we'll get to Natasha in just a couple of minutes. Uh, Lane, how are you doing? This is our second podcast today. I don't know if people know that we record two of these in, in one day. So we're on we're on kind of number two of two. How are you feeling? You got your second second win? I feel win? great. I'm, I'm yeah, energized. I feel great. Got, uh, Did you get my, some lunch in between episodes here? I didn't. I I can't eat something heavy or really at all before I'm about to 
perform, so to speak. When I do my big presentations or a keynote, I know I'm not eating till like four o'clock that Got day. It. I just can't do it. My nerves, I don't know. But I think also I need the uh, the peppiness. And if I'm digesting, that kind of takes energy away. Sounds like a recipe <laughs> for like a, like an energy bar, like a like a like a like a goo or a gel. You ever seen those with a marathoners? Goo or a gel. You know, like marathoners, when you're running, you have like the little pouches, and it's just like a <laughs> jelly. Is that what that they're doing? Have. No, I'm not familiar. Wow. They are they are objectively that sounds so appetizing. They're, mm. <laughs> I know he said a gel, or but that's worse than astronaut food. That sounds like they are objectively <laughs> foul and. Disgusting, but they do the trick if you're like a long distance runner, right? They I give just you- coffee. I just had a couple cups of coffee this morning. I'm feeling good. I'll hold off until after we're done, and then I'll I'll, I'll dive into something good. I hope. What about uh, you? Did you get anything good to eat? Yeah, I had. A, I've been bringing these little like TV dinner looking things, like uh-huh. like kind of these. Hel- I'm trying to eat healthier at lunch because I feel mm-hmm. like l- lunch is the. You know, lunch is the the meal where your kind of dietary aspirations go to die because you're always like really busy and you're kind of like right. going to Starbucks right. and getting like the cheese and cracker plate or something like right, that, which right. is not good. So I've been bringing these little TV dinner things uh, with me, and it's like it's like a like a Mediterranean diet kit where they send mm-hmm. you like four meals per week. They're not and hungry man, not the, Salisbury the not steak, hungry. not the hungry man. <laughs> not I do, I do, enjoy, I do enjoy a good Salisbury steak. Nothing wrong, nothing wrong with that. So. You know. Remember those? Yeah. I definitely oh. – it's a hamburger. It's a hamburger with some gravy. You're doing, you're doing yeah. meal prep. Yeah, meal prep. Uh, exactly. meal prep? Exactly. Yeah. Yeah, there you go. Yeah, and I'm not going to name – whole California thing. Yeah, I'm not going to name like the brand, but like I, I've been underwhelmed by it so far. It's not It's not, It's not. not fantastic. So I, I, I would describe – if I had to choose one word to describe it, that word would be sad. It makes me sad. It like, makes in terms me of, sad. Because you, you, should, you should look forward to lunch. This should be like a really exciting part of your day that you can take a little break. You know, you can – you can just take 15 minutes just for you. And when you're eating like a little meal prep kit, uh, which which is like usually like chicken with like coconut milk or like lentils or something like that. I think that's what it was today. And it's just not – see, as I as I say it, it sounds – You're bringing even, us down, don't I know. Okay, so let's move, let's, I know. Let's we, move. we need to talk about companies. I, I've done meal prep. I've had some really good experiences. So right, we'll, we'll, we'll chat we, offline. We'll definitely share that offline for sure. So uh, – <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, let, let's jump into our uh, our top our top three for uh, today. Today's top three is top three hurdles to hiring school based mental health clinicians. And so, I, I think in thinking about this one, I'll, I'll jump in, and Lane, you may have some thoughts to share, kind of on on this as well. I think there's a lot of like you know uh, logical, like no kidding types of answers to this, which is like you know availability is a challenge, and and wage inflation is a challenge. I really kind of thought about this as like, what are what are the types of barriers and the types of, or if you, if you flip it, what are the types of things that we generally want to try to look for in mental health clinicians when we are um, trying to staff a project that's specifically focused on uh, students uh, who are in that highest level of, of need and have that most acute level of need. And I think the main, the main thing we always look at here at Effective School Solutions is finding clinicians with with the right skill set. So especially if you're going to be implementing uh, school-based mental health care at a tier three level, you're generally going to want to find somebody with uh, extensive experience working with that student population. That might mean an experience or skill set that um, involves something from outside the school setting. So an intensive outpatient setting, uh, uh, a partial care, or partial hospitalization setting, uh, an out-of-district placement or a therapeutic day school or a non-public school. All of those would be uh, you know general areas where 
um, you know, clinicians are going to be getting that that kind of most uh, uh, intensive experience for the most acute students. And if you're trying to recreate that in a school setting, consider looking outside of the school environment to bring some of those, uh, you know, very, very skilled clinicians uh, on board. I think the second thing is like finding clinicians with the right mindset. Schools are fast-paced environments. Uh, they are not environments where, you know, for a clinician uh, who is used to kind of adhering to a very like regular, repeatable schedule, I think anybody who has worked in schools knows that that is not schools. There is going to be, you know, pre-planned kind of, uh, you know, therapeutic blocks during the day. Uh, but, uh, you know, as the as the expression kind of goes, no, no plan survives first contact with reality, right? And so uh, there are going to be things that come up throughout the day. And uh, it's really important to find clinicians who have the right mindset and the right uh, uh, flexibility and the right ability to adapt to really be kind of successful in that in that environment. And then the other, the other thing we hear from clinicians a lot is um, one of the things that clinicians really want is they want to they want to treat mental health care professionals want to treat students and they want to treat students ideally uh, for a period of time where they can really see kind of a true impact. And I think that, you know, a, a, for all of you who are listening kind of a, from a school based setting, when you are thinking about, um, uh, you know, creating a tier three uh, program or, or creating a program that's meant to, to serve students uh, not on the kind of like an episodic basis, but over the course of an entire school year, consider really using that as a selling point to bring clinicians on on board. Because, uh, uh, you know, I think clinicians really value the ability to work with a smaller cohort of students for a longer period of time. I think the mathematical realities of providing school-based mental health care make that challenging sometimes right now, because, you know, there's a lot of students who have a need and there is a uh, um, uh, you know, not, not as many clinicians to deliver that. But if you can structure programming that um, enables you to provide that type of longitudinal care, it's going to allow you to really attract the best and brightest clinicians that are out there. So, Lane, anything you'd want you'd to add to that list? Uh, no, I think that pretty much <laughs> surmises it all. I, I think that's a good, solid top three. Great. Excellent. Uh, what news story do you have for us today, Lane? What news story do I have? This was interesting. Virginia educators build connections to combat teen anxiety. So this article was about two educators that felt that the key to addressing mental health problems is through human connection and that, you know, we are where humans are pack animals and that COVID really deprived us of uh, particularly adolescents of relationship experiences during a key point in adolescence uh, and in their development. So they created a group called Who's in UVA, which is basically a group of students supporting each other. And the dean created a meditation technique uh, called, uh, probably going to destroy this name, but Simune, based on a Zulu word meaning we are one. So a lot of their, uh, the, the meditation really just sort of validated, uh, a lot of the work that we do around emotional regulation, resetting with mindfulness, uh, because we know that those types of mindfulness improve stress response and focus, mood, empathy, self-compassion, compassion for others, improves bullying in schools, uh, focus. So, uh, I, I thought this was a cool article. I like the way that they're approaching, um, you know, supporting students with mental health issues through connection, through human connection. Yeah, Lane, I, I saw, thank, thanks for sharing that. I saw a, um, like a, a graph or a chart on, on Twitter a couple of weeks ago that um, was a study that looked at the percentage of time that individuals in different age groups mm -hmm. spent alone 
pre-pandemic, mm. kind of during pandemic, post-pandemic. And one of the things that I think was really striking was particularly for young people, I forget the exact number, but the number of hours spent by by oneself, you know, right. alone increased dramatically kind of during the pandemic. So your whole point about kind of like a correlation between connection with others and, and <clears throat> excuse me, and and mental health, uh, I think kind of really that 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 uh, study really reinforced the way in which COVID affected that in a in a negative way. And I, I still am not sure if it's back to normal, right? I still think that even as the, you know, kind of virus has receded, I think especially with young people, uh, you know, they might be a little bit more comfortable just kind of being one with their phone, you know, for right. example, or being one right. with their device. And, right. and uh, you know, I, I don't know, I, I in my in my like, you know, limited universe of observing, you know, kids in my circle, like, I I'd probably see, I don't want this to sound like old guy statement, but I probably see a little bit less of like, it's Saturday night, let's go to a movie, right? Like, mm-hmm. like I feel like when, you know, you know, when I was 16, like we go hang out at like the mall or like right. go to a movie or something like that. And I just see a little bit less than that, you know, now than I would probably expect to see and certainly less than I see pre-COVID. But uh, I don't know. What do you, what well, do you observe? So I have two thoughts on that. Number one, I am an extrovert, <laughs> if you haven't noticed. Uh, and so the pandemic was really no tough, way. I think. On, yeah, yeah. believe it or not. I, yeah, I'm not that shy. So um, being an extrovert, I think it was really tough on extroverts during the pandemic. But what we also found is that I think that introverts kind of get a bad rap for not being social. But I don't think that's what's really happening. I think that they are energized when they're alone, but then enjoy being social just for for you know, periods of time. And so everyone was deprived of that. I think it really um, impacted both, you know, introverts and extroverts. I noticed that the residual effect for me is that I've gotten very comfortable being alone, even though I'm an extrovert. So when you say, what are the residual effects? I've still noticed that I'm really quite content sometimes (laughs) being alone. Um, I did have a second point about that. Oh, yes. To your point about uh, video games and the isolation. Just over the weekend, I was helping one of my girlfriends chaperone her daughter's twelfth uh, birthday, and so we, you know, did a bunch of fun things at a bouncy place and all that. They're twelve. When we came back to the house, it was a sleepover. She said, oh, "I'm collecting everyone's phones. I already talked to your parents about it," which I applauded. That was a bold move. These kids almost had a breakdown. There's six kids together spending the night, and they almost had a breakdown that they couldn't have their phones. We're like, but aren't you going to be ta- – the people who you're texting are right here. Like, can't you enjoy each other's company? And they're like, well, I don't know. I might need to do something. I, I need my phone. So then in the morning, I was really impressed. I had stayed over too, and I was really impressed that uh, I was in the room, though, with all the phones going off and <laughs> notifications and all this stuff. So in the morning, they were all kind of like waiting outside the door like, is it okay now for it's us to come like, get like our Chris's phone? morning, right? So, yeah. right. so, so she stuck. She did stick to her guns. She, she stuck, didn't like. Yes. Uh, got it. She didn't care. Yes, I was really proud of her. I had no idea she was going to do that. Apparently, she did talk to the other parents so that they knew, like, to give her a call if there was anything that they needed to talk about with the kids. But you should have heard the the ranges of excuses that these girls had why they still needed to have their phones even though they're with six of their friends. Yeah. Uh, they're 12. They're not like they're doing oh, contracts I, I, and yeah, I, you know, I have some yeah. serious emails no on my phone I have to address. Right, right. <laughs> so that, that's sad that to me, day, right? So. You know, so I, I hope more parents start doing things like that, especially we know it affects their sleep too. So having technology that close to bed is really stimulating, the, you know, parts of the brain that need to be starting to shut down. So I, I applauded the move uh, on the part of my friend. And I just was really astonished. I shouldn't have been, though. But still, it was still jarring to see how upset these girls yeah. were about not having their phones just overnight. <laughs> yeah. We're just talking overnight, not even during the daytime. Overnight, you know. That's a security blanket. In yeah, a lot of ways, right? they said so. I need it to go to sleep. They actually said that. I'm like, you realize it's preventing sleep. They're like, no, I need it. Yeah. I gotta mm-hmm. have it. So, man. Yeah. Well, Don, why don't why don't we introduce our guests for today? Uh, you want to take it away? 
Yeah, absolutely. Um, I was very excited to um, know that Natasha was going to be on the podcast today because I remember specifically the day that we met her virtually. And, you know, my team and I were like, oh, we love Natasha. Mm -hmm. She totally gets it. She understands completely, you know, the need for mental health, you know, in, in the field of education and how we can work together. Uh, to provide those supports. Uh, Natasha is the SELPA manager, as you had mentioned, in San Mateo County, and she has her master's in clinical psychology and marriage and family therapy, and a bachelor's in psychology with an emphasis on child development. And she currently supports a broad range of 33 LEAs to develop leverage and or fine tune their mental health program development. So Natasha has developed and maintained a SELPA-wide mental health handbook with practices, policies, and procedures, service page coding, and examples of tiered levels of support, which we know has been essential in really defining the levels of care and mental health supports that we provide. Um, and she was an administrator in the public school system for eight years, where she built and directed an inclusive behavior and mental health program in a regional school district. So we are so excited to have your level of expertise with us today. So thank you. Welcome, Natasha. Thank you very much. Welcome. Um, Natasha, can you tell our listeners a little bit more about your role as the SELPA manager for the San Mateo County Special Education Office? Um, what is the focus of your role? Um, oh God, what is the one focus? I don't have one focus. I, um, as Don mentioned, I oversee a broad range of 33 LEAs, which would be districts and charter schools. Um, in terms of program development, when I was originally hired at the SELPA level, um, it was because of my program development skill set and the need for mental health. So I was very fortunate that we had um, an associate superintendent who understood the level and the, the almost the emergency-based need for building programming within a school setting. So we don't have to send school or students to a more restrictive environment. Um, so I did that. I audited our whole county I was able to really work directly and closely with all of our special ed directors and superintendents and understanding how do you blend and grade funding and how do you build programming to meet the needs of our students. My passion is um, really working with the students and the teachers because I find they have not gotten the experience or the education in their programming when they receive their credentials on how do you work with students who may be experiencing mental health crises or um, behavior issues that you know, they would typically get suspended for or expelled for. And so I saw a lot of grievances going on in the school districts and a lot of um, behavior incidents where people were getting hurt. And I really wanted to take that away. And so building programming where you can really push those services into the classroom and to kind of mention something that Duncan um, talked about earlier, it's really difficult to hire clinicians who understand the need for school-based or education-based mental health intervention rather than clinic-based intervention. There's a much different skill set that's needed. And so um, that was my focus for a long time. As my time kind of went on in the SELPA, I really started to focus on um, state requirements in terms of um, compliance and disproportionality and significant disproportionality and all things fiscal. As we know, fiscal is one of the key components in understanding how do you um, build sustainable programming? How do you actually look at how can I fund programming that has a quality-based nature and it's not going to end if it's grant-funded. Um, and so I've really looked at all these different aspects and I find that it all goes back to mental health. And so it goes back to my original um, skill set 
And I really find that, especially with significant disproportionality, you need to have a, a mental health-based lens to understand the trauma that students are experiencing by receiving these labels of special ed. And I really struggle with finding that type of intervention and that tiered level of intervention or the continuum of care to support the, support the students, the staff, and the community, and the parents so they don't have to qualify for special ed to get um, intervention. So that's a little bit of what I do and oversee, um, but I'm always looking for other challenges of how I can uh, make the system better. It's a lot. That's yeah. a really impressive. Commendable Natasha, thanks work, for, yes. for sharing that. So for our non-California listeners, can you give us a brief like SELPA 101? What is a SELPA? What do they, what do, they do? SELPA is, is very unique to California. Um, I was just recently on Friday. Um, I flew to a conference that was... Um, put on for superintendents and board members. And so it was a very unique experience to speak in layman's terms for understanding what SELPAs are and how we support districts. And because they're so different, we are really here to serve our districts. We are advisory, not supervisory. Our role is to really support the compliance and the mental health and our special ed directors in terms of special ed. But I find our role kind of broadening in the sense that we are really looking at how to support the system as a whole. How do we build MTSS systems within the school districts and how do we support the district leaders in um, funding that and building that? But we look at how do we take the things that California Department of Ed is requiring and supporting the districts to complete those requirements so they can stay open. Um, how can we make their lives a little bit easier? Because as everybody is very aware, we are in pandemonium right now. Uh, there are plans that are required to receive those funds. There are plans required like the LCAP. Um, there are plans and significant disproportionality. So SELPA is really here to support all of our districts. We do a needs assessment and we ask, what is it that you need support in? And we um, provide that support in a forward-facing manner. So, Natasha, what really led you, I mean, if you think kind of, you know, very early in your life, early in your career, what would you say were some of the foundational things that kind of led you into the career path that you're on right now? I actually wanted to be a veterinarian. Really? Early on in life. Um, but then I realized that you had to put animals to sleep and like, I could not do it. Do that. Um, <laughs> and so I knew I wanted to be in the helping field. Um, even in elementary school, I was mentoring kindergartners and I really loved the classroom. And so I um, ended up going into a private high school and I founded a peer counseling program for an all girls school. And um, during that period of time, I was really close to a, a university that had an art therapy um, program. And I thought I was going to go into art therapy. I did not. Um, but it is a very good tool to use when you're providing intervention and therapy. Um, it kind of, when I was 17 and young and not knowing what I wanted to do, I was in college. I was in my first internship in the juvenile justice system. And my specialty was um, working with students that were involved in gangs. And um, that is where my heart really goes to for students who really need that they're our most vulnerable. And I know it sounds kind of not like vulnerable vulnerability when you're talking about gangs and violence, but they really truly are vulnerable. And um, I went from there to um, becoming a child development specialist in a drug rehab facility and assessing um, women to see if they could have their children back. From there, I went to um, working in homeless shelters. And then I went to the state of Hawaii and open residential facilities for the state. And I really started working with some um, mental health that I've never seen before in my life and working about 80 hours a week and seeing the continuum of care and the lack of 
support that is out there for our students. And you really felt like you're in a movie. Um, I learned so much there and with various mental health needs and starting to work into school systems. I came back to California and I worked at a non-public school on Stanford campus. And I really learned that behavior and mental health are married. Um, and without understanding the both of those unique functions, you are really not going to make the impact that you need to make with our youth and families. Um, and so I became a behavior specialist and I learned about comorbidity. I, my specialty was extreme suicidality and self-harm and cutting and slumming, which we don't really want to talk about. It was kind of gross. Um, and then I uh, became an intake coordinator and a clinician moved to private practice and really learned that districts were struggling, um, especially in terms of providing support for students to stay within that district. They were oftentimes being moved to non-public schools or more restrictive settings, such as RTCs or residential care facilities. And um, that is where I built an internal program and I got rid of all vendors. Um, I contained about $350,000 my first year building that program. I served students anywhere from age three up through eighth grade. And I looked at it as a continuum. I really wanted to bring those parents into the school setting. And so I was very fortunate to work for a district that I had the ability to even have one-way mirrors. I wanted them to see and build parenting skills. I wanted them to see their students were safe and having a good time at school. And I wanted to be able to um, build programming where teachers knew what they were doing and they felt safe in the classroom. And so I got rid of all restraints. I had one restraint in about two years. I uh, got rid of all grievances and we served all behavior. So all ABA or applied behavior analysis programs for all of our autism based students or kids on the spectrum. And I also served all mental health needs um, from three to eight. That's when we really started to see the uptick in even preschool age students, mental health assessments. And so we really looked at it from a um, multidisciplinary team stance, and I made sure there was a mental health clinician or a behavior health clinician on every assessment possible. Um, that really led me to getting my name out there and really consulting with various school districts and um, and looking at it from a, a perspective where you could go in, coach, consult, build programming, and get out. There's no reason for us to live and eat and sleep and breathe and and constantly stay with students because they're not going to generalize the skill. We want to teach them how to generalize the skills and be successful human beings. Um, they need to be reintegrated into the community. And so that's what led me to SOFA. Awesome. Thanks, yeah. Natasha. Yeah. And, and it kind of sounds like, you know, I haven't heard, I hadn't heard your uh, previous experience, but it kind of explains the culmination of your current role and how you really get the outside in and the inside out of mm -hmm. mental health and what it takes from the community level and how from the inside of the schools, it can impact the community, right? So it's a reciprocity that's occurring. So, you know, given, you know, your experience, what would you say is the current state of school-based mental health in California? And how is this the same or different from five years ago? I think we've always had mental health issues. I think they just appear different and they look different. Um, I think the intensity has definitely grown. Um, right now, we're just starting to see the bubble up of the pandemic experience. I don't think we are seeing nearly what the impact truly has um, done to our society, especially on our students, whether they're itty bitties or uh, transitioning age youth. I think that... Um, 
we have a lot of suicidality issues in California and we have a lot of self-harm, whether it is, you know, they're an internalizer or an externalizer and they're uh, really vocal about it. Um, I think the we are understanding the need for more psychoeducation and more programming to support these students. Um, but my worry is we don't have the bandwidth. We don't have the staff to support that level of intensity. People really struggle with understanding what does it look like to support students, whether you're in tier one, tier two, or tier three, and are they stagnant or can they be fluid? Um, students should be fluid. We as adults are all functioning on all the different levels every day. And we really don't understand how to bridge that gap between student in the education academic environment and the home base, because we're really trying to also focus on boundaries as clinicians as well. So it's this fine line and dance done as we've talked about many times yeah. in the past. And how do we do something that's ed code appropriate, but we're supporting the community, the staff and the students. Um, and so it's really finding that sweet spot and understanding how do I do that? So we can make sure we're seeing success both in the school environment and the home environment. So I am a former educator. And when you spoke a little earlier, uh, you made the connection between behavior and mental health. That was not a connection that I had made early on in my career, in my early mm -hmm. 20s. This is like in the early 2000s. And uh, one of the big mistakes I made was thinking that these really challenging behaviors were like a personal affront to me. Uh, and it was just disrespectful, which now I know also ignited my stress response. So that's kind of my personal story. But I'm wondering what you think uh, may be missing in terms of uh, understanding mental health um, in the field of education. And, you know, what do you think would make a real difference? There's so many things. That and how it's a real difference, I should say. Yeah. <laughs> Wait, so did I say that one more time? And how it's viewed and implemented, I would add. Oh, okay. So it's going to sound a little bit reverse. I'm just going to mm -hmm. preface that with what, what, how I'm going to explain it. I think that some of our kids are over-therapized. Mm -hmm. um, I think that they see therapy as sometimes, not all the time. <laughs> I think they see it more as a disciplinary action. And I think they see it as, oh, I have to go to another session and it doesn't do anything. I don't understand what it means. Why am I going to it? And so they don't really see that bridge. And so I think what's missing is really meeting the kids where they are. We learned a lot from our students over the pandemic and what their interest areas are and how to reach them. We need to use what we learned and implement it. It's almost like a hard reset. We need to really start where we learned from. We're at a baseline now. This is the perfect time to reset and recalibrate how we treat students. Um, and just because we think they need therapy doesn't mean that's what they need to make progress. And I think it needs to be aligned with therapy for sure. I think that we just need to figure out how to meet that need. So maybe bringing in more mentorships and mentors who maybe look like and act like the students, maybe for students who are lacking a mother or father figures, you know, pairing them with someone who can really, you know, work with them in the community and the home and also the school setting. So they have consistency across all environments. And I think that we really need to figure out how do we build functioning and successful RAP teams? And what I mean by that is RAP is supposed to support all environments. And that's something where we, we really, you know, lean on our, community-based agencies to do something like that because we just don't have the bandwidth in the school setting. I mean, I think we could, but that would be a huge ask for me. And that would be, I've done, I've built programming like that before and it's been very successful, but it's hard to sustain and maintain. And um, it takes a lot of 
creative thought and outside of the box thinking to be able to figure out how can you do something without getting into some dangerous areas of going into the home? How do you not put your staff at risk for things? But how can we meet the needs of students and get them reintegrated back into the academic setting? I mean, Natasha, one of the things you mentioned a couple minutes minutes ago was kind of the need for districts to have a blueprint as to what really good, high-quality school-based mental health looks like. So that whole question of like, uh, I get that it's important, but what does it look like and how do I implement it? Um, I mean, I, I think we we know that districts need to build their mental health competencies. I think what you just described is a key part of that. How do we make that happen? What's the best and most efficient way to help districts understand what good looks like? I think that it takes someone who understands all the different environments. And also, you really need to look at your core population. Am I looking at an elementary district? Am I looking at a unified? Am I looking at a high school district, a transitioning youth program? And so until I understand the environment, which I'm building it for, you need to have someone come in. And sometimes it takes an outside eye. It could be at your county office of ed. It could be your SELPA. But someone coming in and doing a needs assessment and auditing what you currently have, it doesn't mean you, doesn't mean you need to get rid of everything. We don't need to destroy what's what's working. We need to understand what's not working and how do we build off of that based off of what we see the current need is. I think also going and looking at other programming is really important and key, especially in neighboring districts. If you have neighboring districts, because Don and I learned very early on, our programming looks much different than when she was in a different state. It's like apples and oranges. And so understanding what California-based programming looks like and what it could look like is super helpful and making sure your programming is evidence-based and data collection. I find that if we're not making data-informed decisions, we're not doing anything accurately. And I think that's, we're not using the data to tell a story that we need. Yeah. Yeah. And, and just related to this, because this comes along with the implementation aspect, which is, you know, California's mental health funding landscape is among the most complex in the country. Uh, and for a school administrator in California listening to this podcast, what are some of the key things you would want them to know about how they can achieve sustainability with their mental health initiatives? Are there any new funding streams or pieces of legislation that you'd like to highlight in California? California is a beast mm. of understanding funding. That is not something I ever <laughs> wanted to or ever envisioned myself getting involved in, ever. I never, ever wanted a part of it. Um, but when you're building programming, you really need to understand the structures of the funding um, possibilities. I think that if you don't understand how to blend and braid funding, um, you will not build what you want. And I think if you don't even know what to blend and braid, that's even more of an issue. And what I found when I came to SELPA was there was a communication gap. And what I am currently working on and breaking down that barrier is there are various components or various departments in a school district. And I think there's a CPO, there's a special director, there's many gen ed administrators. And I find that they don't really they work together as a team, but they don't know what each other is saying because we all speak such different language and we are acronym happy in education. Mm -hmm. yeah. And so if a special ed administrator understands programming and what she or he wants, she doesn't know how to say it in terms of what fiscal stream or funding um, resource code would I use to pay for that type of um, program. Mm -hmm. And so what we've been really working on here in San Mateo County SELPA is 
having a neutral party at the table, which is myself. And I go to all CBO meetings. And then I also go to all state level meetings in terms of fiscal understanding and making sure I understand the latest and greatest funding things that are changing. It's always changing in California, especially, especially mental health funding. As you know, state and federal mental health, at least in our county, was held at the SELPA level. And so I was always making sure I understood what did it entail? How could I spend those funds? What could I could and couldn't I spend those funds on? And then we started to flow those state funds directly to our districts with the understanding of I built a handbook. It was very clean and clear. I wanted them to understand what did I do once I received those invoices? And then step by step by step, because if you're audited, you need to make sure you're audit proof. And so now, as we know, the next set of funds that are going to be flowing directly to the districts are the federal state funds. Those are very restricted dollars, which you can only use on Medi-Cal approved vendors. In our county, we have one only one Medi-Cal approved vendor, which makes it very difficult for our districts to expend those dollars. And it's like grant dollars. You have to expend them first to receive them. And so what we're really looking at doing is building a system of care so we can support our CBOs. And then we can also help them understand how do I spend those funds? Because because if you don't spend them, they go away. We don't want to lose any funding. And how do I make sure I integrate both state and federal funds, including grant funds? Because I want to support both gen ed and special ed students as much as possible. Things coming down the pike are SP-HIP. That is basically um, a very complicated grant that's coming down. And what it's going to allow districts to do is bill Medi-Cal themselves in January 2024. Mm. That's not something we've ever done in our SELPA or our county. And so that will allow for a lot more funding in terms of servicing all of our students, not just one or the other, special ed or gen ed. Oh, Natasha, I don't, what, what isn't there? That, I mean, what don't you do? <laughs> I mean, I'm telling you, it's very impressive um, that you're impacting change at such a high level in every aspect of school-based mental health. It, it's really impressive. I do want to uh, kind of shift gears a little bit because one of the dynamics that we sometimes see in schools is a disparity between mental health services provided to special ed students versus general ed students. So I, I have my own thoughts about this, um, but I'm really curious to hear what your thoughts are about what drives this. And do you have any suggestions for districts to create mental health kind of safety nets that work across both, um, you know, both of those student populations? Oh, this is like a really like trigger hot topic for me mm. um, <laughs> because I feel like when you're building programming, you're building programming for all. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm going to take it a step back a little bit further for you, if you don't mind. I find that coming into the um, educational world, mental health credentials are not acknowledged. And um, that is a huge problem. If you don't know how to hire mental health clinicians, except as like, you don't even know where to put them on the scale, right? And so if that's a problem, how are we supposed to support our students in providing that service on a school site? And so one of my biggest challenges is to fight and break down that barrier, which is why I went back to school just to get my PPS credentials so I could actually get into the appropriate place and clear my credential. And that's literally a piece of paper so I can do what I'm already doing. And I think that's wrong. Um, and so in terms of supporting staff, um, I really think that um, it's through an MTSS or multi-tiered system of support lens and helping educate people. Um, we put on a lot of um, professional development for our community. And we even bring in um, 
legal counsel because my biggest fight was when I was a tier three trainer for MTSS, people really truly believed you had to be in special ed to receive tier three support. And that's inaccurate. That's false. And um, it took me bringing in a legal counsel to really stop that belief and helping them understand a documentation system, a way to assess for mental health and behavioral health needs and build programming for gen ed versus special ed students. And I think that the more we were able to share and provide actual documentation and tools for them to use in just a setting and helping them understand, you can do whatever you're doing. It's a, the only difference is documentation. And people really need to understand mental health is not a standalone service for special ed. And so if I was a, uh, an administrator in a school district and I knew I was able to provide a student with mental health intervention and it would be exactly what that student need to re-engage into the academic environment, why would I want to label them with a special ed label when they don't need that? That's not okay. And so really building programming um, in your school district to serve all, it just it just helps the environment so much. And I really, really, I realize that working with principals and helping target students before they even get to the special ed, even arena is, is really truly the way to go. Um, and it's an inclusive practice. We should be able to treat everybody, not just one or the other. And it's an organizational question too, right? Because I mean, the way a lot of central offices are organized, you have a director of special education. You don't always have a director of mental health services who has the mandate to kind of span special yep. ed and gen ed. So I think sometimes we're kind of limited by maybe those those traditional role definitions in, in school districts. I think they are. And I think they don't understand the funding aspect, right? When you're thinking of funding programming or a mental health clinician, they it's very, very like concrete. They think if I'm funded through special ed, I can only see special ed students. And so that's why you, it's important to blend and braid the funding so they can see all students and see all parents and work with community-based agencies. And so that way you have the ability to leverage your program and serve more students. And and this kind of brings me back to what you had said earlier about, you know, this is a potential opportunity to reset the education landscape. Um, do you see mental health becoming an essential part of the education curriculum rather than like an add-on or an elective or only for special ed or whatever narrow bucket it's in now, maybe becoming part and of the education environment and landscape? I do. Um, I think that it is going to be a mandate. Um, I work on a state level mental health work group that works on assembly bill writing and making sure we understand what the requirement is for school districts. And unless we embed the mental health based techniques and intervention across a trauma informed lens throughout our whole day, we are not going to make the impact that we need to make. Um, and with that, we've experienced so much trauma and loss, and we don't even know how to serve our students, especially after the pandemic. We don't know what they went through. Um, I think it was an eye-opening experience for a lot of administrators and teachers because once those kids either turn their cameras on on Zoom or they refused to, they had to really look into that student's life and home and see, oh my God, I had no clue what you were experiencing. And um, we really need to refocus and shift and train all of our staff, not just teachers. We have paras and skias and janitors and bus drivers and and, and, and I think it's really important to train all with the same lens and the same language 
and with the same understanding of why we are doing what we're doing. So, Natasha, given the magnitude of challenges that we've talked about just in the last 30 minutes or so, it seems like prioritization is going to be really, really important. So, standard question we ask all guests, if it was, you know, magic wand time and you had like magical ability to kind of like take the magic wand and make one singular change to, you know, school-based mental health care delivery, policy, you name it, what, what would that what would that be? I would really look at um, this as my magic wand. I would build... Um, an MTSS system across the county that included community-based partners. Um, because I feel like unless we have all integrated into that system, including juvenile justice, social welfare, probation, um, child family services, school-based intervention, and we're all a part of that one intervention system and triangle, there's no way we're going to make the impact that we need to make. Natasha, I could not agree more. Um, in my former life, I was once a program coordinator for an, uh, a, a pregnant parenting teen mother program for the state of New Jersey. And uh, my role was to just to bring in community partners and resources. And I was always amazed how much was out there, number one, like, and how many nonprofits or just organizations were there waiting for our populations. So that was really cool. And then making those connections in the community that kids could, re- uh, you know, could, um, could get access to even without us once we just make the establish those um, initial connections, things like Dress for Success and a, a lot of other mm-hmm. really great organizations. So I, I totally echo those sentiments. Thank you. So I want to ask you something that we like to ask all of our guests. What would you say is in your mental health toolkit? Like what is the th- what it, what helps keep you grounded in your mental health? What what kind of routines or things do you do to protect your mental health? I uh, have a lot of routine. Um, I learned early on in my career that I have to keep a routine of self-care for myself or I would burn out. Um, My thesis actually in graduate school was the burnout rate in the mental health field. And I wanted to understand clinic versus educational burnout. Um, And so I built a lot of rituals within my day. And so I am an avid gym goer. I go to the gym every morning at five for a few hours or a couple hours um, six days a week. Otherwise I find my mental health just deteriorates. It's my own time. I learned how to meditate even while running. If I was running, um, I also learned that, um, having a healthy diet, Duncan, which is why I know about meal prep is super (laughs) key because, um, we are going all the time. Very rarely do we get a lunch break. And so meal prep is super important. Um, I don't ever want to be hangry, which I have been known to be. Um, and then I also really make sure I, um, in the evening, I spend a lot of time with my family and my kids, which is really important to me. And then uh, bathing before I go to bed. I want to make sure all the energies are off me. And I can, like, if I've had a really bad day, picture everything going down the drain. Because mm-hmm. I don't want to continue that energy of, the, of that day into my dreams. And so... Uh, mm-hmm. Self-care is extremely important to me. So meditation, uh, mindfulness, all of that. Natasha, how does, so how does device usage fit into that? Tying it back to kind of Lane's story before, like uh, it, your evening routine. Like how do, you, how, do you, how do you think about kind of device usage? And are you, are you kind of good about – like no judgment at all because I'm terrible about no, it. No, no, like, no, are, totally. are, you, are you good about kind of like putting the device down and saying like after 7 <laughs> um, o'clock I'm not touching it? Or is it, is it a little bit more I, challenging? I am very good and I am considered the mean parent. Because my kids don't have uh, electronics during the week. Even during COVID, they didn't get electronics. 
um, except for the distance learning when they, they had a very short period of time on distance learning. And so devices really are monitored in my house, including myself. My husband has a little bit higher of a time, um, but because it really impacts the brain. And when my youngest was two, um, we went on a trip and, you know, like you give your kids iPads on the planes mm-hmm. to like keep them really okay. occupied. Mm-hmm. When we got back from the trip, I took the iPad away and it was like meltdown city. Mm-hmm. And I will never forget that. And I, from that point on is when I really started limiting devices for them and myself. Mm. I can also relate to your shower routine. Uh, that is something I have done for decades. I didn't know that that was self-care until probably the last five years or so. Uh, but I didn't think about it as infecting my dreams and all that. That's pretty interesting. Mm-hmm. I, I did think about it as just washing the day off of me to start new. It's sort of a reset. But also it triggers my brain to like, I'm going to sleep now. This is part of mm-hmm. my sleepy time routine, mm-hmm. get my mind thinking about sleep. Mm-hmm. So I definitely appreciate not only that, you mentioned several others, family time that are also great mm. things to have in your mental toolkit, uh, mental health toolkit. So thank you so much, Natasha. It has been wonderful speaking with you today. You are so knowledgeable and you are so impressive. And we are just really applauding the work that you're doing in your county and beyond. So yeah, Natasha, thank you. Thank you. The, work you're, the work you're doing with, with kids mm-hmm. at an individual level, but mm-hmm. at a systems level, level, I think is so, mm-hmm. so important. So appreciate you. Uh, we've appreciated just kind of getting to know you over the over the years and uh, you're just a great champion for uh, students and in San Mateo County so uh, thanks for all that you do and Don thank thanks you. for having me Don special guest host yes. so. thank you so much for joining <laughs> oh, us today, Don. Don. it's all I'm so happy to see you me too <laughs> right, well, Lane, thank you uh, so much for having me and giving me the opportunity to speak on your podcast absolutely anytime, anytime. come back thank you so much I will come back whenever you want me to and we will take you up on that for sure <laughs> All right. Thank well, you. Lane, Have a great day. You too. Bye. Thanks, Natasha. And Lane, why don't we why don't we wrap it up? Uh, what would uh, let's let's uh, standard uh, ending segment? What inspired you this what week? What inspired me? So on Monday, I had the privilege of well, let me give you a little context. So uh, at the end of last year and early this year, I was a keynote speaker at a particular district in New Jersey where um, we spoke a lot about resetting ourselves and emotional regulation and implementing transition resets throughout their day to build that skill set. And so now months later, it's now December, I came in to, um, to, you know, check on the project and we have a new coach I was introducing them to. And while we were uh, talking, one of the teachers said, you know, we've really been working a lot of an, on emotional regulation in our classrooms based on the trainings that we had with you. And I started, she, I, I know our listeners can't see, but I'm holding up my palm. She was doing an emotional regulation technique where she would take a finger and go through the ridges of each of her fingers. And on the uh, upswing, it was an inhale and then an exhale as you go down through your finger slopes. And she said this was, you know, a technique that she she started using and shared with her students. So then she said recently she was having a moment of dysregulation. I don't recall what she was upset about or what was frustrating her in the class. And one of her students said, hey, Mrs. So-and-so, and put their hand up as if she needed to do her regulation technique. And um, she was so excited that not only were they really taking it in, but that they were recognizing when she's dysregulated and pointing out, hey, hey, do your technique. And it was in a very not even, not even just respectful, a very loving, compassionate way. Um, so her sharing this story with us in, in the, our group coaching session was really cool. Great way to start off my week and feels, uh, really good about the work that we're doing and that it is making a difference, you know. 
So that was my inspiration for the week. Yeah, uh, that's fantastic. Yeah. So yeah, for for me, I'm just getting a lot of joy from the holidays right now. Mm-hmm. I think uh, probably not the most original answer, kind of this time of year, but. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, I think the biggest challenge is just kind of actually pausing to kind of take it all in. I'm a, I'm a big. Uh, are you are you a are you a house lighter? Do you put lights in your house and things like that? Um, I do. I just kind of do like the the stairway up to my door and like the wreath, and I, I have two reindeer out. It doesn't get crazy, but just a little something to note. Like we're Christmassy yeah. here. <laughs> yeah, you're you're a, you're a s- selective illuminator. Is yeah, what inside, you are. Yeah. I do. I mean, I don't get crazy crazy because it's so much to take down and put up and all that. But I do like to have some little sprinkles of Christmas around and, you know, so I've got my, I, you know, I'm leaving for vacation for, um, you know, at the end of the month. So I realized it was going to be even a shorter holiday in my house. So I just did, you know, a little bit. I feel like you're doing like a Maui commercial. It's like Maui official Hawaiian (laughs) Island, official Hawaiian (laughs) Island of the Mind Bee podcast. I'm, I'm having a Maui Christmas, everyone. My sister lives in Maui, uh, I said, you know, it was devastating when she first moved there because we're very close. That's yeah, really tough. But it's worked out really yeah. well. I have to yeah, say, I really enjoy going to visit her. So, what, so. what are the what are the odds that we have three people on this podcast who have either lived in Hawaii, Natasha right. and I? I heard or, you mention Hawaii as well, or Natasha, who has yeah. a relative in, in Hawaii. Don, right. any any Hawaii connections you want to highlight here for? What you're you're on a? I think you're on mute, Don. Oh, we lost uh, you. Oh, we lost. <laughs> <laughs> Awesome. Um, well, hopefully, if you haven't done, I hope you get there as soon as possible. I know you're already halfway there. So. Well, I, I'm hearing an undertone of an invitation, Lane. Thank it you. Is. Oh, come it on. Is. Everybody's welcome. Uh, and, Blair, and you hear that? That's my sister. Ready? I'm inviting more people. <laughs> Everybody's welcome. It, it, it is the, you know, Hawaii is the northern New Jersey of the Pacific Islands. So, so just to put it in kind of, you know, terms that. Right in. Yeah, there you go. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> All right. Well, thanks. Well, I would uh, just like to add one last thing about, you know, things that inspired me this week, if mm, that's OK. Please. Um, mm. We're doing holiday celebrations uh, this time of year with our staff. Um, and I'm always very present to being with our staff who provide, you know, the direct care. And I'm very inspired by, you know, what it really takes for them to be with our students, our families, our teachers. And, you know, just get having a moment of levity and fun with them, having a meal. It's just very moving uh, to be with the people who are making the difference. Uh, so I did I did want to share my inspiration for this Thank week. Thank you. Well said. And, and Natasha, you're still on with us. I don't want to leave you out. What, uh, is <laughs> yeah, there anything you'd you? like to share that has inspired you this week? Um, let's see what's inspired me this week. I think I've done a lot of um, work in terms of working on interagency work. And so it's really inspired me to continue the work that I'm doing because I'm finding there, we're still finding, it's like Swiss cheese. We're finding there's holes and a lack of connection. And I just, when I was trying to explain to someone, it was like the connectivity. We have all these meetings and all of these wonderful committees and structures and systems in place, but the right hand is not talking to the left. So my inspiration this week is to really find out how do we plug those holes and make those connections occur. That's excellent. Nice. That's excellent. Well, Beautiful. Dawn and Natasha, thanks again to both of you. Thanks again to all of our listeners who have uh, joined us this week. And we appreciate everything that you're doing to support uh, the mental health of our of our students, of uh, family members, and of uh, the staff members that are that are supporting those uh, those groups. Thanks, and uh, have a great holiday season and a great rest of your day. The MindBeat podcast is a production of Effective School Solutions. MindBeat represents the opinions of Duncan Young, Lane Whitaker, and their guests on the show. The content here should not be taken as medical advice. The content here is for informational purposes only. Please consult your healthcare professional for any medical questions. 
This podcast should not be used in any legal capacity whatsoever, including but not limited to establishing a standard of care in a legal sense or as a basis for expert witness testimony. No guarantee is given regarding the accuracy of any statements or opinions made on this podcast. If you or someone you know is experiencing a mental health crisis, please call the 988 Suicide and Crisis Lifeline, the SAMHSA National Helpline at 1-800-662-HELP or your local health care provider.